Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. All right, will you turn with me to the book of Psalms, and we're going to go through Psalm 92 this evening, a 92nd song that we find in God's hymnal here. Once you get there, if you look at the superscript, that little section that's usually before the first verse, maybe in italics or something like that, that's the first verse in the Hebrew Bible, Um, but Psalm 92, the superscript there is unique um, because this is the only psalm in God's hymnal that describes it being for the Sabbath day. I even kind of wondered as I was preparing this over the last week or so, uh, should I switch up Acts and move that to Wednesday night for a minute and Sunday Sunday we'll uh, go through this uh, song, but I I don't know that God would be displeased if we study this song on a Wednesday. Um, The British... Uh, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, he said this about Psalm 92. This song for the Sabbath is proof enough, as if proof were needed, that the Old Testament Sabbath was not, it was not just a day of rest, but it was a day for corporate worship. In Leviticus 23.3, it describes our coming together uh, to worship the Lord on the Lord's day. It calls it a holy convocation. And Derek Kinner said, God has always intended that it be a delight rather than a burden. And I like what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said about Psalm 92. He said, it is quite suitable for the Sabbath day, not so much in its appearance because it doesn't have really any allusion to rest, um, but it's quite suitable because on that day above all others, our thoughts should be lifted up from earthly things to God himself. And Psalm 92 definitely does that for us. And that's something we need on every day, isn't it? Our thoughts being lifted up from earthly things to God himself. Let's pray. God, we come to you this evening uh, humbly requesting that you would use the truth that's in this song to lift us up from all earthly things, from earthly temporal fading pleasures and treasures from any cares or anxieties or worries and lift us up to know you. Lord, we pray that through your word, you would lift us up to be in awe tonight of who you are for us and what you've done for us, to be in awe of what you've promised to do for us. May Psalm 92 fill us with faith tonight so that we can receive good from your hand and that you will receive the glory that's due you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 1 through 5 really ask us to recognize our Father, to acknowledge um, God's character and conduct. The first five verses are all about praise, uh, praising God our Father. Verse 1 says that it's a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. It's a good thing to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. And so I emphasize the word good, and we probably ought to start with that fourth word. It's a good thing for us to give thanks 
to God and to sing praise to his name. Why is it good? Because we need to know uh, what God means here if we're going to live in line with this truth. Or what if we asked, well, who is it good for? And I don't disagree that our giving thanks and singing praise uh, is not good for God necessarily, but I don't think that's what he's trying to communicate to us here. Throughout this hymnal, throughout the book of Psalms, and even throughout Scripture, we are repeatedly told to praise the Lord. Why? Is God um, this egotistical individual who is in need of constant validation through our worship? And we know that's not the case. Acts 17.25 says that God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. So, so why all the calls for praise throughout God's word over and over and over again? Well, verse 1 tells us why. Because it's good. And yes, while God may derive some good from our praise, ultimately, it's good for you and I. <laughs> it's good for us. The scripture teaches us this foundational truth. Our joy is to be in God. Our joy is always incomplete until it's expressed, until it's fully enjoyed by us. It requires that we express our joy. C.S. Lewis gave uh, this illustration from our day-to-day -day lives. Um, we do this all the time, really. Um, what happens when our favorite team scores a touchdown? We celebrate. We get excited. Uh, if we're at a party with multiple people, we celebrate with each other. Um, sometimes I might call my wife in to see the replay. She don't care. Um, but she patronizes me. I'm sorry, Ben. You probably don't have this opportunity much with the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> no. um, just had to use that one right there. No, you, but you might text a friend who you know is watching at home, or you might share that play on your Facebook page or something like that. What about a deeper, a deeper more meaningful relationship or joy source? And take, take, for instance, your sweetheart. Think about it. At some point, you will verbally express the joy and the satisfaction that you have in him or her to him or her. You'll also probably express it to your family or friends or even everyone on social media. Because, I mean, you want to tell the world how wonderful life is right now, right? And what about the most deep, meaningful, and eternal source, capital S, source of joy that you have? What about him? Your relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. It's just the same. Your joy in Christ is incomplete until it's expressed. And church, that is why it's a good thing. It's good for us. It's a good thing to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to his name. God's just calling us to do, whenever he tells us to praise him, he's just calling us to do what is good for us here at the beginning of Psalm 92. In, in every case, in every situation, he always knows what's good for us. He always wants what's good for us. And he instructs us in his word to do what's good for us. That's who it's good for. And that's why it's good to do this, to give thanks and sing praises to his name. And we're given two names of God that reveal the glory of his attributes and his perfections here in verse 1. Uh, first of all, Lord with all capitals, that's Yahweh, the one who is. 
no beginning and no end, the one who causes to be our creator, and then most high, El Yaun. There's no one higher. There's no one more powerful. And then verse 2 says that we are to show forth in the King James, or uh, we're to declare, we're to testify of his loving kindness in the morning and his faithfulness every night. That word in the King James translated as loving kindness, it's that precious Hebrew word that's found throughout the Psalms, chesed. It means God's faithful, dependable, irretractable. You'll never lose it. You can always depend on it. His love for us, especially in Jesus Christ. What are we to do? We're to declare it. We're to testify of it. Every morning, his faithfulness every night. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What if we did what God says to do here? If we truly lived out, verse 2, because it's a good thing for us. What do you think your day would be like if it began with you giving thanks, and singing praise, and testifying of God's dependable love for you? When some obstacle came your way, some trial or temptation arose not long after you getting out of bed, would you be full of faith to meet it head on and to go through it? I mean, you've just testified of God's faithful, dependable, irretractable love for you. What about his faithfulness every night? What if you did? What's good for you? What we're told to do in verse 2. Would you just maybe save some money on melatonin or some other sleep aid if when your head hit the pillow every single night you testified of his faithfulness would, would the pains of the past day or the worries of the next would they be shoved out of the way with meditations on and declarations of God's rock solid faithfulness in verse 3 it instructs us to worship when we can um, with musical instruments. God loves music. I'm so glad for the worship that we have here and all the people God's gifted to be a part of leading us in worship. Um, God created music. We find it around the throne of heaven. Think of the passages in Isaiah or Revelation. Um, even in God's creation. I, well, I think it was probably two, three years ago on Sunday night we showed a Louis Giglio video, and we showed to the teens often. But, I mean, there's stars that emit pulses that are musical in nature. Even creation sings to him. God loves music, and he desires that thanks and praise be carried to him and communicated to others through this creation of his. And all of this in these first three verses, um, it is how God desires to be recognized as our Father. To be thanked, to be praised, to have a testimony of his loving kindness and faithfulness, to be recognized, to be acknowledged. Uh, we're to ascribe to God. That's what God tells us in Psalm 29, 1 and 2. We are to join the angels in concert, in choir, as we ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, as we ascribe to the Lord the glory that's due his name. That, that, that doesn't mean we give him glory or strength. No, he's already got that. It just simply means that we recognize it by giving him thanks and praise. We recognize his glory and strength by declaring his loving kindness every single morning and his faithfulness each night. So in three verses, we've seen God's design in our praise to him. It's for our good. Um, we've seen the duration of our praise. 
every morning, each night. And that's a poetic parallelism in the psalm. So really what it means is he's to be praised 24-7 all the time. God's given us direction about the content of our praise, his loving kindness, his faithfulness, all he is for us in Jesus Christ. And then verses 4 and 5, they tell us what should drive our praise for the Lord. Let's read it again, verses 4 and 5. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy work. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. So our praise should be driven or should be motivated by God's works for us and his thoughts for us. And since this is a good thing for us, and since we already have and we're going to sing praises later tonight, I thought it'd be a good thing for us to have a brief testimony time here tonight. Well, it's verses 6 through 11. The tone kind of changes here in the psalm. Um, but it's still taught truth. And it's there that we learn the recompense of the foolish. And that's a consistent theme that we find in the Psalms. Um, a lot of times David or Asaph will talk about the seeming disparity um, between people who are living wickedly, but they're still having apparent success in this world. It's a source of frustration for David and for Asaph. Has that ever frustrated you? Yeah, <laughs> me too. Um, and verses 6 through 11 remind us of what their end is, though. The recompense of, of the foolish. Let's read verses 6 through 11. It says, A brutish man knoweth not, neither does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring as the grass, and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. But thou, Lord, art most high forevermore. For lo, thine enemies, O Lord, for lo, thine enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. But my horn shalt thou exalt like the horn of a unicorn. I shall be anointed with fresh oil. Mine eye also shall see my desire on my enemies, and my ear shall hear my desire of the wicked that rise up against me. And so verse 6 uh, begins this section by telling us that a brutish, and the King James literally means stupid, a, a stupid man does not know anything about what we just talked about, giving thanks to God or giving praise to God or testifying of God's goodness. Um, fools cannot understand what we have been studying so far. They would not understand what we just did this evening. And um, their incapacity is not due to a, a intellectual uh, or mental disability. It's because of a moral one. They lack awareness, yes, but it's because they refuse to recognize God's love and faithfulness that's so evident all around us. And rather than give him thanks and praise and put their faith in his love, they praise the temporal treasures and pleasures of this world. They put their faith in them. And verse 7 reminds us that, that while from our human, uh, mortal, limited perspective, uh, when we glance, it's really what we have, even if we live to be 100, we have but a glance, uh, our appraisal of their life, yeah, it might look like joy and success, at least for a moment. Um, but their flourishing is so temporary. It says it's actually that they shall be destroyed forever. That's a recompense of the foolish. That's what will happen. That's what always has happened, always will happen. They refuse to acknowledge God and recognize the goodness of the Almighty. 
Um, Psalm 14.1, Psalm 53.1, Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10. Four different times in God's word, we're told that the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And so what a contrast between them and God as provided for us in, in verse 8. Those who reject God and refuse to acknowledge his love and his grace, both them and their success are temporal and headed for destruction. But what about God? No, he's eternal. <laughs> he is the most high forevermore, it says in verse 8. And what a contrast between them and those who are God's. Those who do recognize and put their faith in God's love for us in Jesus Christ. That's what verses 9 and 10 assure us of. While God's enemies will, will perish, those who are his will be exalted and strengthened. That's the promise behind those poetic symbolic referrals to, to my horn being exalted or me being anointed uh, with fresh oil. The horn is a symbol of strength and power and uh, the anointing with fresh oil. We'll be refreshed. We'll be revitalized. We'll be given new life. It's interesting, the King James has verse 10, as this shall happen, but my horn shalt thou exalt, and I shall be anointed with fresh oil. But if you have really every other English version, even ones that are based on the same text as the King James Version, they put it in the past tense. You have done this, God. And um, so I'm reminded, it seems like a minor difference, but this is a truth we've learned earlier in our study through the Psalms. Faith always sees a promised act of God like it's good as done. And I think we see that again here. Uh, in verses 11 to 15, that's where it transitions from the recompense of the foolish to the reward of the faithful. And in these closing five verses, we're given the promised rewards of the faithful, of those who live in and live out the first five verses of this psalm. They're given thanks, they're given praise, they're testifying of God. <coughs> now the initial reward that's mentioned in verse 11, it may not be true for all of us, at least like it's described here. And again, there's a difference in tense between the King James and all other translations. Uh, the King James puts it as something future, and most of the English ones, uh, modern ones, they put it as something past. God has done this, whereas the King James says that they shall. Um, there are times, this is the essential part in verses 11 to 15, there are times when God graces us with the opportunity or the occasion to see this promise and this principle in real time in our own lifetime. Well, verse 11 says, Mine eye also shall see or has seen my desire on my enemies, and mine ears shall hear of my desire or has heard of my desire on the wicked that rise up uh, against me. Uh, we, may, we may live to see God's enemies, our enemies, receive the recompense of their foolish, even in this world. We may not. <laughs> but... We have seen past examples and scriptures of that happening. And we will see it when Christ returns. You can be sure of that. Now that might seem like an unusual or maybe even off-putting reward. Because it's talking about those who have rejected Jesus Christ being destroyed. Um, that might seem like an unusual reward for the faithful. But that's how God's word describes it. Uh, and everything that accompanies in it. Those who reject God's grace to them in Jesus Christ, they will fall. They will perish. They will be destroyed. And the reward for us in that is in our choosing the right way, his way. Our whole life long, we might have been mocked, 
and ridiculed and told we were ignorant, old-fashioned, persecuted. We're going to learn the Sunday of the first Christian martyr. We might even have been martyred for choosing and for persevering on the right way, but we'll be rewarded for doing so. Even at the very end of the tribulation, Revelation uh, 18, 20, uh, there's a command there. And it's asking for all of heaven to rejoice and all of God's people to rejoice because Babylon has finally fallen. We're told to rejoice, just like we're told to rejoice about God's goodness here. In verse 12, uh, it contrasts the apparent temporary flourishing of the foolish wicked from back in verse 7 with the eternal flourishing of the faithful. Let's read verses 12 to 15. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those that be planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing to show that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So what's the reward for the faithful? Eternal life. Evergreen like a palm tree. I mean, think about that culture where it's mostly desert and completely arid conditions, and you see this palm tree that's green all the time, all its life long, or, or like uh, as stable and eternal as the cedars of Lebanon. I've never been to Lebanon. I've never seen those cedars, but from what pictures I've seen, they look, has anybody seen redwoods out in California? Uh, like, I mean, people can drive cars through them. It's just stable, o- almost eternal type of thing. And that's a reward for the faithful. That's a reward. Eternal life. Eternal flourishing for those who have been, what? Planted in the house of the Lord and in the courts of our God. So in verse 13, uh, planted in the Hebrew literally means transplanted. And I think that's interesting because isn't that what has happened to us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ? We've been transplanted. Colossians 1.13 It says that God has rescued us from the domain of darkness and he's transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Bam, praise his name. If you've trusted Christ as Savior, you've been transplanted. We're we're in an eternal kingdom now where we have eternal life. And look at that description of life that we even experience at this point. Not, Not just waiting for heaven, even right now. Verse 14, they shall still bring forth fruit in old age. They shall be fat and flourishing. So when plants get older, typically their fruit bearing diminishes a little. Um, And that's where this whole plant and Christian metaphor breaks down. Uh, Because for the Jesus follower, they will still, they'll still bear fruit. Will still flourish. Will still be fat. It says in the King James. All right, what it means is will be full of vitality. Uh, not our concept of fat. I don't want anybody going home and saying, I don't need to go on a diet. God's word said it. I believe it. That settles it. Not talking about that fat. It's talking about um, being full of life. But isn't that a precious promise? Even into our old age, I, I love Isaiah 46, 4, 4. That's where God says, even to your old age and, and your gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you. And I will rescue you. And God's word tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 16, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, <laughs> the inwardly we're being renewed day by day. So it's possible that our physical bodies might not line up with this flourishing 
fruit bearing, it might line up with a fat description. Um, it's possible that that can happen, but, but while inwardly we are seeing the fulfillment of this promise, we're still bearing fruit even into our old age. We're still growing in the Lord. We're still, still bearing fruit for his glory. Why does God do this for us? You ever ask that? Like, why did he save me? Why is he so good? He is good, right? That's been the theme of this, this song. Well, we're told why in verse 15. To show that the Lord is upright, that he is my rock, and there's no unrighteousness in him. So he does all of this, everything we studied tonight, all of his goodness to us, especially in Jesus Christ. That's why. To show so that we show that the Lord is upright. His goodness to us, our, our joyful satisfaction in that goodness that should erupt in praise and thanks and declaring testimony. It's all to show that he is our rock and there's no unrighteousness in him. Is he your rock? In Hebrew, that word is like a cliff-like, immovable boulder. Make him your rock. Don't, don't build your foundation or look for joy or satisfaction in the puny pebbles that this world offers, that the foolish did, that were described in verses 6 and 7. No, give him thanks. Sing his praise. Show forth his love in the morning, his faithfulness at night. Declare in your words, in your lifestyle, most importantly in your faith, which should drive those two things. Declare in your faith, the Lord is upright. He is my rock. And there's not a bit of unrighteousness in him. Because it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing. It's good for us and it's glorifying to God.